Welcome to the Occult London podcast. This is a new podcast dedicated to exploring magic, mysticism, the Kabbalah, as well as other topics. If you like the podcast, please write a review and rate us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to your podcast on, as it will really help us to get this message out there. Also, be sure to visit our website at www.occultlondon.co.uk where you can subscribe to the show. Before we start, I wanted to say it's been quite a while since we did an episode, so apologies for the delay. However, moving forward, uh, we will be putting out regular episodes as before, as well as more video content on YouTube. Please follow us on YouTube as we are trying to grow that channel. Also, if you do like the work we've done and would like to support the show, you can now support us through Patreon and also on Buy Me Coffee. Uh, Links are in the description. Any donations will really help with the costs of running the show, which constantly increase. I really appreciate all of your support and kind messages and hope you enjoy this episode. In today's episode, we're embarking on a fresh journey as we introduce the first instalment of a new series on ritual and also the power of symbols. We're also going to be doing a series of episodes on talismans. Whilst many of our listeners are likely already immersed and experienced with ritual, be it in personal practice or within the dynamics of a group setting, um, yet regardless of one's familiarity, I think there's an intrinsic value in unpacking and revisiting some of these practices, particularly when we shift our focus to the nuances of group ceremonial magic and particularly the inner aspects of the practice. There's lots of discussions about the outer trappings, so wands, swords, etc. But in this episode, I wanted to focus more on the inner aspects and also why there is a lot of focus on training and developing of the concentration and visualisation as beginning practices in magical training. Since the dawn of time, ritual has been intrinsically linked to what it means to be human, from tools, music, symbolism... All of these things show us the consistency of ritual and also from archaeological records as well as biological records we see ritual as being hugely important to the evolutionary process. Gareth Knight describes the art of ritual magic as follows and I quote is a discipline and method of occult practice wherein all the faculties of the student are employed in the pursuit of the great work. This is as in all reputable occultism, the expansion of consciousness in order to make one's general human qualities and understanding of the universe the greater, and from this to act as a conscious channel for the work of God in his creation. The first part of occult work consists in fashioning yourself into an instrument worthy of use by the forces of light, and the second part is the dedicated service to God and man that follows from this. This quote from Gareth Knight I think really shows the path to the great work as more than just ritual. It's a transformative journey and at the heart of this journey as Knight emphasises are these critical faculties of concentration and visualisation. They're not only instrumental for this practitioner's spiritual development but also form the bedrock for effective magical operations. We can also look at this process in terms of the two types of magic that are normally used to categorise operations, namely high magic and low magic. High magic, often referred to as theurgy, 
is is obviously the one of the elements when we talk about this expansion of consciousness and also fashioning oneself as an instrument worthy of use by the forces of light. Night is kind of indirectly alluding to the immense training and the inner refinement necessary. And central to this is the mastery of concentration and visualization. In high magic, where one's goal is to align with the divine and elevate one's consciousness, these faculties become essential. Through honed concentration, the practitioner can attain deeper states of meditation, unlocking realms of higher knowledge and awareness. Visualization also aids in the formation and navigation of the inner realms, the astral landscapes, the building of thought forms, which are essential for the inner journeys and also communion with higher entities. Low magic, on the other hand, sometimes it's referred to as goetia. Um, also, concentration and visualization are you know really important within that as well, albeit for slightly different reasons. So here, where the objectives are more tangible and immediate, or they may involve you know things like um, gaining more money or love or things like that, and in the physical realm, but these still require skills to ensure the precise direction and manipulation of spirits or energies. And a practitioner needs strong concentration to maintain and control during long rituals to ensure that the energies summoned are directed towards the intended purpose. And visualization is also important in this aspect because it assists in creating the desired reality within the mind's eye, ensuring their intention is focused and also acting as a blueprint for the energies or the entities to follow. Knight's emphasis on dedicated service to God and man also reminds us of the overarching responsibility which comes with such power. The sharpened faculties of concentration and visualization are not merely tools for personal empowerment, but also the reins with which the practitioner can guide their abilities towards the service of the greater good. Moving on from Knight's quote, we can also say that ritual is something that we can't ignore as humans. And whilst different rituals are more important than others, to different people and cultures, so for example, Catholics attend mass, um, Hopi Indians participate in sweat lodges, Muslims obviously fasting during Ramadan, Buddhists also have their own rituals. And many religions obviously have their distinct rituals, but even if we're not religious, we can still kind of encounter rituals in our daily lives, such as weddings, funerals, birthdays, graduations, festivals, parades, etc. On this basis that we can say is ritual is an essential part of who we are and also what we experience and what it means to be human. So let's just have a quick look at what ritual is and Barry Stevenson in his book Ritual Short Introduction offers quite a useful definition into its nature. He writes Ritual is first and foremost doing. Just as we comprehend cooking, swimming or politics through action, we similarly grasp the essence of ritual by engaging in it. This excellent quote, I think, suggests that rituals aren't just symbolic or theoretical constructs, but they are deeply rooted in our actions. Just as one truly understands the nuances and the details of cooking by actually 
preparing a meal or understands the dynamics of swimming when we dive into the water. The same goes for ritual. We really appreciate the depth and significance of a ritual by actively participating in it. And this comparison underscores that while practices like meditation, which are deeply introspective and internalised, rituals are much more about manifesting beliefs and feelings through tangible actions in the physical realm. They create an external expression that resonates powerfully within a particular space, making them not just personal, but also communal experience. And the concept of ritualistic behavior isn't confined to human society alone. We've seen many ethnologists throughout time have seen and written about different ritualized patterns in animals. So for example, we have honeybees with their waggle dance. So upon returning from food gathering, honeybees perform a dance known as the waggle dance. And this basically involves a kind of quite intricate abdominal waggle combined with unique footwork that mirrors a figure of eight. And as the bee moves its abdomen rhythmically, other bees cluster around to watch. And research has actually found that using radar technology that this dance is a kind of way of communicating the location of different food supplies and pollen. We also see rituals in crested grebe courtship as well, where one partner will imitate the other in a synchronised rhythmic dance. And it's kind of like mutual choreography that serves as a bonding between the two partners. And these instances really highlight the universality of rituals spanning from human ceremonies to instinctive animal behaviours. A ritual often referred to as a rite is also a sequence of actions, each imbued with a particular significance. Every movement in a ritual holds symbolic value and the process adheres to a designated format, ensuring its uniformity. Upon its completion, it's customary to commemorate the occasion, often with a party or celebratory activities. Rituals also frequently denote moments of personal transition as seen in the rites of passage. They're also integral to religious practices, so often symbolise one's affiliation with a faith or a community. And for example, religious rituals often indicate a participant's allegiance to a particular belief system or they may reflect status, qualifications, or devotions to a particular deity. However, rituals are not also exclusively spiritual. So there's lots of different examples from the secular world as well, from you know showing your allegiance to a sports team by wearing a particular um, jersey, um, symbolic kissing of a mafia boss's, boss's ring, also enlistment ceremonies in the military. All of these practices reveal the breadth of human activities that Richelands encompass, and they're not just ceremonial displays. Predominantly, rituals can be categorised into two main types, social and spiritual. Social rituals are the ones we're all very familiar with, like birthday parties, stag parties, celebrating personal milestones, spiritual rituals, also include things like initiations or first holy communions and also deeply rooted in religious and spiritual traditions. Regardless of the type, however, the focus of the rituals is the individual. 
For instance, even if an initiation rite is conducted for a group, it's tailored to resonate with each participant individually. Similarly, a birthday party, even if it's for lots of different people, holds a unique significance for each one. Thus, while rituals can encompass group activities, their ultimate intent is to touch individuals and have a personal impact upon their lives. Magical rituals are slightly different and they do kind of operate on a different plane. And this is described well by um, Gareth Knight again. And I quote, In magical ritual, however, all depends upon the state of mind of the operators and unless they are well trained in the techniques of concentration and creative visualisation, the work will invariably prove abortive. The whole aim of occult ritual is in fact for it to be an aid to concentration and visualisation. And if one could achieve equal concentration and conscious control by other means, then there'd be no point in using magical ritual. Dion Fortune also talks quite a lot about this as well in some of her books. Um, and she wrote the following. Ceremonial magic is simply mind power concentrated and coordinated by means of a formula. It is safe to say that if a spy were present at even the most exalted ceremonial, far from being blasted, it is only curiosity that would save him from boredom. Equally upon the other hand, it is folly to deny the power of ritual, but it's only powerful to affect the prepared mind the mind of a person who has been conditioned to the symbols employed. We've already seen the amount of work it takes to produce the necessary conditioning. It's obvious, therefore, that no casual observer will even be impressed, much less affected. A key difference between social spirit and spiritual rituals and also pr proper ceremonial magic is the art of visualisation. And a magician really refines the skill and amplifies its potency by connecting it to a tangible act and then working with a specific divine power or a spirit. And the power of this combina combination is also captured in a quote by Dion Fortune when she wrote, understand the power of the thought form to bring through a cosmic force that ensouls and renders it real and potent. And you have the means of performing the miracle of transubstantiation upon whatever symbol you elect to use. Make your thought form after the correct manner and the corresponding force will ensoul it and you have a real presence. This passage I think is really great and it really emphasizes the paramount significance of visualization in the realm of magical practice. Visualization in this context is more than mere imagination or picturing scenarios in one's mind. It's a cultivated skill where the practitioner can create, mould and also begin to perceive distinct vivid images or scenarios invoking feelings, energies that can influence both the inner and the outer realities. And the act of refining the art of visualisation is quite similar to a musician practising a piece of music till it's perfect or an athlete training for an optimal performance in a race. As a magician hones the art of visualisation, they don't just keep it at a mental or ethereal level, they try to anchor it to 
a physical or tangible act, thereby bridging the gap between the conceptual and the material. And this connection begins to magnify the power of the visualisation, allowing it to have a palpable impact on the material plane. Dion Fortune's quote, I think, also illustrates some of the deeper mechanics of this process. The thought form she refers to can be seen as an energetic manifestation of concentrated thought. When created and directed with precision, this thought form can harness a cosmic force or indeed a spirit or an archangel or another spiritual entity. And then that expansive universal energy can bring the visualization to life, making it real and potent. And her use of the word transubstantiation is quite interesting as well, because obviously that's traditionally associated with Christian theology, where you know bread and wine were believed to transform into the body and blood of Christ during the Eucharist. So its use here suggests almost like a process of metamorphosis, a transformative power to turn the symbol or the representation into a living entity or force. The magician or the operator becomes the symbol, becomes the mandala. The idea of symbols is really important to the idea of magical rituals, so I wanted to talk about that a little bit next. Symbols obviously hold you know, massive importance within ritual. Social and spiritual rituals incorporate you know, lots of different symbols to communicate different messages. And in the realm of spirituality, symbols also are used to signify a change of status, initiation, or an alignment with a religion's teachings. Also, we see it in the normal world with birthdays, you know, employing symbols such as cakes, presents, and songs to obviously ensure the person whose birthday it is of their elevated status of being a year older. And an essential distinction is that while obviously birthdays recur annually, many spiritual rituals, especially initiations, might only occur once in a lifetime. A common misconception about rituals, however, is their repetitive nature. In reality, no ritual can be precisely replicated. Even slight changes in time, location, participants, or lots of other factors will render each ritual unique. As the saying from Heraclitus goes, no man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river, and he's not the same man. Just as rituals will change depending on many factors, such as the time, the location, the words, the participants, so also do the symbols change. And so given this, we can infer that symbols are fundamental to rituals. And perhaps this sentiment is best captured by the statement, a ritual is an activity of the mind symbolically manifested in the physical world by a person or persons. Rituals symbolize the tangible manifestation of the intangible, channeling the unseen through symbols and allegory. The power of symbols is really beautifully described by Jung when he wrote the following. Who speaks in primordial images speaks with a thousand tongues. He not only captivates but also transcends individuality, elevating personal experiences into universal truths. 
In doing so, he unlocks the forces that have been perennially empowered humanity to overcome challenges and endure even the darkest hours. Rituals therefore serve as conduits to communicate with our unconscious mind, bypassing the need for rational translation. They bridge the conscious and the unconscious realms. Think about where you live, your house, and what happens there. How many cars pass you by daily? While you probably struggle to kind of think of the exact number consciously, your unconscious mind probably knows and all that information is going into your unconscious mind. And this reservoir of the mind doesn't process information rationally. Instead, it absorbs data, assigning associations and relationships, putting it into different boxes and organising it for potential future conscious recall. Whilst our conscious mind operates logically, our unconscious mind works through associations and symbols, which makes it a really potent tool for rituals. Symbols also bridge the conscious and unconscious mind. As one author put it, a symbol is something that serves as a representation of something else. This representation could be anything, which really illustrates the immense power of our mind. Images can convey richer information than words. If we think about the symbol of a chair, for example, it can have lots of different meanings. So obviously a chair, you can rest on it, you can sit on it. It's materials made of wood. Um, it could also have memories such as a relative sitting there telling you a story. It could also have memories of a significant event like someone proposing. It could also have mythological connotations like Thor's throne. And then it's also the design and structure of it itself. Dion Fortune perfectly describes this when she says the following the only way to talk to the subconscious mind is through the pictorial imagination but show it a picture and it understands drawing analogy from computer science just as computers interpret different sets of commands symbols can be seen as the programming language of our unconscious mind so all sensory data is initially processed by our unconscious mind before reaching our conscious awareness. Thus, the significance of everything we experience is somewhat predetermined and planned by our unconscious, which is often why, and it perhaps it may be why, we often understand ideas, even if we can't rationally explain them. And also, if our experiences are a construct of our unconscious, then the universe's meaning must also stem from the same source. And by manipulating the meanings associated with symbol through ritual, we may begin to reshape our perceptions and reality. And this is a process that Dion Fortune described as follows. The plan is to change the use of a symbol slightly so that when the conscious thought is done, the new information becomes part of the meaning of the universe. And Gareth Knight also reinforces this, explaining how ritualistic symbolism emerges one into another dimension. Symbolism is all important in ritual, as in much occultism. 
Instead of contemplating a symbol subjectively, however, as you might do in meditation, in ritual you become part of the symbol or symbol system, acting it out physically and presenting it to the physical senses in every way possible through sight, sound, touch, taste and smell, as well as holding it before the inner senses. By the inner senses we mean not only the faculties of the imagination, but also the mental understanding and the spiritual will or intention. Thus one aims to become temporarily, completely, one-pointed, whereby nothing exists but the symbol. This may seem to be a narrowing kind of operation, but it is in fact just the opposite for no symbol exists entirely independently, sufficient to itself alone, and the narrowing down of concentration and attention results in fact in a broadening out in another dimension. The great magician W.E. Butler, who um, also studied with Dion Fortune, further elaborates on this idea, indicating that the technique relies on conditioning the mind to images and harnessing their cumulative suggestive power, saying, It will be noticed that the magician is using the principle of the association of ideas, but it is necessary to point out that such association of ideas depends in the first place upon a mental link between the various details and the central idea. Now this link may be made voluntarily or involuntarily. In the first case it is made by consciously and deliberately associating the ideas, in the second, the association is immediate and subconscious. Tying a knot in one's handkerchief as a reminder that one has to buy some particular thing is an example of the first class, while the association between, say, sausages and airships is a natural example of the second class. Such involuntary associations often appear to be far more powerful than the deliberately willed ones for they represent the direct workings of the conscious mind. But the willed association link can be just as powerful if they are correctly built up, and it is this deliberate training of the pictorial imagination which is the basis and practice of the magician. Interesting, this process of making associations also sort of mirrors some of the kind of shamanic practices that you come across as well, but it also highlights um, how important the training was uh, within the mystery schools and this idea of being able to consciously bridge the unconscious with the rational mind. And Dean Fortune calls this process of linking the unconscious and the conscious mind as a process of working with the sphere of sensation when she writes the following. The world as we know it consists of what is reflected in our magic mirror and is built up into images in that treasure house of images, the sphere of sensation. The objective reality we shall find is not intrusive. In fact, it is we who collide with it, not it that seeks us out, and it will leave us to stew in our own juice indefinitely for all the effort it will make to assert itself. We shall find then that in our sphere of sensation we have scope for a very great deal of activity, and that here is a world that we can remake nearer to the heart's desire, according to its ardour, energy and discretion. Though how we will like it when we have remade it is another question. 
Anyway, we have no need to endure it if we do not like it, but can get to work on it with every hope of results. That's a quote from Dion Fortune. She also wrote, The real sphere of the operation of the occultist lies in the selective capacity of the magic mirror, so that he chooses a very great extent with what images he will people his sphere of sensation. Focusing the magic mirror is what in other terms might be called the tuning of consciousness, and it is done by concentrating the mind upon specific symbolic images. Through ritual, the symbols that we use as well as the experience of the rites will go back to the unconscious and add to the list of meanings connected with that symbol and its connections. And whilst we can't erase the meaning already associated with a particular symbol, what we can do is add more associations to them which effectively make the original meaning ineffective. And this is why often rituals will be very different and they'll be going over and over again. Um, because it will take several iterations of a ritual before the message is changed. And also the more senses that you use in a ritual, then the more intense the addition will be and the more effective. This is described by W.E. Butler um, when he wrote the following. In purely mental methods of methodation, there is an insistence upon the control and inhibition of the bodily senses. One is told that it is necessary to be able to shut out unwanted thoughts, to keep the mind unwaveringly fixed upon one thought only and to refuse to allow any sense impressions to distract one from the chosen object of thought. In the magical system, however, the images pouring into the mind from various senses are used as suggestions to the conscious mind, which because the particularly sensitive condition that she has been induced in by the ritual itself continues to follow the line upon which it is concentrating. It is a form of psychic jujitsu which the very power of the sense impressions is used to render the conscious mind immune to their distractions. Before however such images can produce such an effect two things must be done. The mind must first be conditioned to the image Consciously and persistently, the image must be held in the mind and the appropriate emotion associated with it. Until the image being held in the mind, the emotion automatically wells up from the subconscious level. Secondly, either by the actual performance of the ritual or by some form of auto-hypnosis, the threshold of consciousness must be lowered so that the subconscious levels merge into consciousness and become available to suggestive power of the chosen thought. So with all magical props, the sword, the wand, the pentacle, the cup, the circles, triangles and sigils, the lights, the robes, the incense, the sonorous words of invocation and the barbarous names of evocation, all work by cumulative suggestive process upon the subconscious mind. Such a cumulative suggestion results in what may be termed a mental change of gear and therefore conforms to our earlier definition of magic as the art of causing changes in consciousness at will. And that's a quote from W.E. Butler, Magic, Its Ritual, Power and Purpose. Two of the most powerful conduits for this process of rewriting the code in our unconscious are sight and smell. Sight, 
because we tend to believe everything we see, even if our rational mind does not. And also smell because we can't help but smell things. Um, sound could also be really effective as well. In ritual, it's also really important to point out the effect of meaning of symbols will change depending on who is in the ritual. And this meaning will be different for different people. The symbols we use in the ritual act as substitution codes. So this symbol means that and this symbol may mean something else. Words are also really important because they act as symbols in this regard. So words can act as symbols for sounds and letters in words are also symbols and changes to symbol sequence structures can also change the message that get re gets relayed to the unconscious and then it can also obviously alter the effects of the ritual. These little subtle details are very important. This is why you know a great deal of care and attention but should be made when writing rituals, um, particularly for a group because you don't know how people will react. Um, a common method or system that's used in the Western mystery tradition is the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, which is also known as the mighty all-embracing glyph of the universe and the soul of man. And obviously the Tree of Life has lots of different correspondences depending on what particular energy you're working with and correspondences of different symbols and um, angels and archangels, colours, stones, etc., which can all be used really effectively from that kind of practical um, aspect. But when we talk about symbols, we need to kind of think about a few different things. And one of the one of the areas that has the most symbols in our culture is mythology and stories and graphic novels and movies, myths, folklore, fairy tales. And all of these things can give us a real kind of encyclopedia of how symbols can give us meaning that we can use in magical ritual. All of these stories resonate with us and have a deep impact. We all remember stories from our childhood or we may have met people. I'm sure most of us have met people in the local pub, for example, who you know, brilliant storytellers and they can make the most boring story absolutely hilarious to all the people in there. Stories all have different meanings and different levels of complexity and that can also be used in the element of ritual. Some symbols are also very flexible. So for example, the symbol of a sword can symbolise, you know, cutting through something that's unwanted to get to the real kind of nub of the issue. Or it could also mean defence and war or it could also mean wisdom and, you know, thinking, for example, from the tarot. Whilst other symbols such as a god or a goddess are more fixed in their meanings and may have different levels of power depending on how you use them. Whilst there's lots of different definitions of this, there's generally three different categories of symbols which um, we can kind of use to kind of think about this process. The first one is obviously logos and these are obviously the most flexible type of symbol really. Um, they're all around us all the time, even though their power of meaning is pretty weak. And words can often be considered as logos as well as letters. If they're put together into different forms, they can also change meanings. The other one is icons, and these are kind of much more powerful than logos and have more of a sort of psychological impact. And whilst there's fewer icons than logos, 
they can kind of really pack a quite a strong punch in terms of changing the unconscious associative patterns. One example of a really effective use of an icon is the Coca-Cola icon. Um, and the story goes back to you know the 1920s, the manufacturers of Coke wanted to create a campaign that increased sales of cola. So they reached out to hundreds of you know tiny little stores across the USA and paid for big signs in the distinctive red and white lettering and also installed coolers so as people drove by they could they could stop and have a really ice cold coke thus over the years the sign of cola um, becomes synonymous with refreshments um, so it's got this kind of very powerful sort of um, emotional appeal to it um, another symbol as well is obviously McDonald's from that point of view. But the, the, the type of symbols that are primarily used in, in more from the magical perspective are archetypes. And these are very well known from the work of Jung who described them as follows in his Civilization in Transition. Archetypes are like riverbeds which dry up when the water deserts them but which can find again at any time. An archetype is like an old watercourse, along which the water of life has flowed for centuries, digging a deep channel for itself. The longer it has flowed in this channel, the more likely it is that sooner or later the water will return to its old bed. So you can kind of think of archetypes as being like these sort of powerhouses of the world of symbolism. There are essentially symbols that are universally understood to stand for a particular group or feelings. Or information connected to a concept of a world and you can really think of these as being kind of master keys of power because they contain a huge amount of information and energy and meaning that is almost universal to all cultures so for example the figure of the mother the father the warrior the adversary also you see these in movies and marvel style comics as well such as superman the villain the joker etc in ritual settings, archetypes are often used in pairs or polarities to generate energy. So, for example, you'd have the mother and the father, the god and the devil, the hero and the villain. Working with polarities of power is one of the kind of deeper secrets of the In Mysteries that brings a lot of power with it. On the subject of polarities, it's the truth also that ritual magical working is essentially a matter of handling different polarities of power and this is why in many of the re in many lodges in the western mystery tradition you also have the symbolism of the two pillars boaz and yakin as being representative of these two opposing currents another way that we can illustrate this is the caduceus of mercury where you've got the two snakes coiling up a central wand um, giving the counter change of colors at each level in rituals, archetypes can be extremely powerful and should be handled with care. And generally, only one archetype is used in a ceremony, or if using more than one, it's often a shadow archetype within the pair. So you'd get like Baldor and Loki, or Cyrus and Set, or it could be Isis and Neptus, because there's a there's less psychic conflict in the unconscious when the archetypes exist in the same story or mythos. 
Ultimately, however, rituals tell a story or a myth about a world that we are not directly involved with, but which can provide us with new experiences, information that can bring about new epiphanies and realizations within ourselves. And to maximize the effects of these stories on our being, ritual can bring to life the stories and myths of the past in highly controlled and designed environments that can really streamline our ability to influence the unconscious mind. However, it should be noted that while we are talking about symbols in the conscious and the unconscious mind, this is not to say that the work of the magician or the initiate is simply gazing at the contents of their own mind. So, although a lot of this stuff sounds very kind of psychological, um, we are talking about deeper stuff here. And Gareth Knight explains this well when he says the following. In ritual magic, one is, as in most of occultism, dealing with the subconscious or unconscious mind, and through this making contact with invisible realities, objective states of existence and beings that are not normally accessible directly to the conscious mind. This means that there is more to occultism than playing about with subjective visions or even archetypes of the collective unconscious. There is this to it, and much that passes for occultism is in fact no more than regurgitation of conscious, subconscious elements. But to the trained occultist who is on his contacts, the unconscious is merely a magic mirror in which are reflected objective, though non-physical realities. Consciousness is thus indirectly projected into the fourth dimension. And also Dion Fortune wrote about this as well when she said the following. The uninstructed person thinks he is developing psychism when he sees elves, archangels and elementals with the inner eye. The instructed person knows that they are using a technique of the imagination in order to clothe with visible form the intangible things that would otherwise be imperceptible to his consciousness. He makes use of it for two reasons. First, because it is the most effective way of handling levels of the mind that are beyond the direct access of normal consciousness. To conclude today's episode, we can say that profound depths of rituals serve as more than mere exercises of the imagination. They act as gateways connecting our conscious with the unconscious and bridging tangible with intangible realities. Rituals and symbols, as Gareth Knight and Dion Fortune, also Butler, have said, are not merely about introspection or playing with the contents of one mind. They're tools and techniques that allow us to tap into vast, objective, non-physical realities, spiritual entities and beings, transcending the boundaries of our three-dimensional comprehension. It's a journey, one where the practitioner isn't just looking inward, but is exploring the vast expense 
for objective truths that remain concealed from our everyday conscious gaze. And in this exploration, in this journey, the trained occultist and magician begins to understand the significance of symbols and rituals beyond superficial interpretations. And we can begin to realise their potency in accessing layers of existence that are often overlooked in our modern world. Therefore, the art of ritualistic magic becomes an endeavour not of mere self-contemplation, but of exploration and enlightenment. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks very much for listening to the Occult London podcast. Please check out our website at occultlondon.co.uk and help us grow by adding a five-star review. Also, if you enjoy the show and like to support our work moving forward, you can subscribe or make a small donation using the links in the description. I hope you all have a wonderful day and goodbye for now. <laughs>